Hospitals are again under strain with the latest wave of COVID. This time, staffing shortages are compounding the problem due, at least in part, to an increasing rate of resignations among healthcare workers. And doctors and nurses are a sturdy lot. Why should some of them then want to quit even when they expected their careers would involve very grueling conditions? In some cases, it's the distress of not wanting to treat their own patients, patients who could have avoided the need for treatment by getting vaccinated, patients who openly disrespect the doctors and nurses and who take their service for granted as some kind of unconditional right. What are the philosophical ideas that worsen the moral distress currently plaguing these doctors and nurses? That is a question we're going to discuss today. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And today we're going to discuss healthcare workers' battle with moral distress. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at ARI. Uh, with me is my colleague, senior fellow, Elon Giorno. Hi, Elon. Hey, Ben. So, Elon, bring us up to date a bit here. What do we know about the staffing situations in these hospitals and uh, uh, what uh, today's doctors and nurses are doing in response to this latest uh, COVID surge, the Omicron variant? I think if people were reading the news, they're bound to come up uh, with uh, come up against articles with anecdotes about what's happening and doctors feeling really strained and stressed. And if they know doctors, they'll see that too. Uh, a couple of polls that we found in looking at this suggest that this is a, a significant problem. So according to a Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation poll, three in 10 healthcare workers have weighed leaving their profession and more than half feel burnt out. So you think every other person you meet in a hospital who works there, according to this, is burnt out. Now that's a very serious situation. And another poll is also from uh, 2021, I think late in the year, one in five or about 18% of healthcare workers have already quit since February, 2020. So from the beginning of the pandemic, roughly. And then another 12% say they want to leave for another job in healthcare. So to move to something presumably that doesn't have the same kind of work conditions that they're experiencing right now. So a lot of factors are going on here. And that's part of what we want to unpack. Uh, the top reason for the doctors who have already quit and doctors and healthcare workers generally, the top reason cited by 54% of them in this one uh, survey is the pandemic and the experiences they're feeling. And the second top reason to that is burnout. So with a combination of what it's like to be in a hospital during the various waves that we've seen and just the, the grinding experience of having to work through that. So let's get into a bit of what it's like in hospitals because I'm not there and you're not there. What, what kind of things are we, do we know about that are going on that doctors are experiencing? Yeah, and just to take one step back quickly, it's worth pointing out that that one in five statistic uh, is disputed at least by some people. And, and part of the reason for that may be, well, one in five have left their job uh, at one hospital to go to another, which wouldn't be a net impact. But some, some of them certainly have left. And the, the really significant statistic I thought was the one about 19% of them wanting to leave the industry altogether. So even if they haven't already, they're thinking of just getting out of the business entirely. And the big question is why? why? Why would they want to do this even when they knew they were going to deal with quite a lot of you know, death and, and sickness when they went into this business in the first place? And I mean, the short answer is just how bad it's gotten. And it's worth emphasizing 
how true that is, because we we also know, and it is also true, that this latest wave with the Omicron variant is in certain respects less severe than the previous wave Delta. It uh, doesn't mean it's less severe than the initial wave, but it's less severe than Delta, which was pretty bad, less severe in the respect of the kinds of just health consequences it has on the person who gets sick with it. But we also know that it's more contagious. Uh, and so while it's, it's true that people who've gotten vaccinated don't have a lot to worry about with regard to Omicron, uh, unvaccinated people are a different story. And most of the people we see in the hospitals today are, are unvaccinated, something like 13 times more. You're 13 times more likely to be in a hospital if you're unvaccinated, 17 times more likely uh, if you are an unvaccinated adult. And when, so when you have 37% of the US population still unvaccinated, that's, a, that's millions and millions of people who could potentially get sick. And it, does, it just takes a fraction of those to overwhelm hospitals. And that's why we're seeing uh, this kind of surge. And you can tell that there's something bad happening by the kind of impact that we're seeing just on hospitals themselves. Uh, we reached recently, uh, January 16th, a record level of hospitalizations uh, in the United States, 142,388 people hospitalized nationwide uh, with COVID. The previous peak was way back in January of 2021. Now, it's important to say that there is a distinction between people who are hospitalized with COVID and people who are hospitalized for COVID. Uh, right now, the procedure is whatever reason you have for going to a hospital, even if it's just a broken arm, they're going to test you to see if you're infected. And you, so you might not have been admitted with any symptoms. You might not need treatment for COVID. And so they will count you nonetheless as being hospitalized with COVID. And that's reflected in those numbers that I just quoted. Um, and that's become, even more true as hospitals have gotten better at testing. But there's still a huge number of people being hospitalized for COVID. And the data bears this out and makes clear that it's having an impact on hospitals. So uh, as of, uh, I think, January 10th, the state of New York started keeping statistic, keeping records on the difference between those who are being hospitalized for and those who are being hospitalized with. And it's something like 58% of the people are not just uh, admitted for other reasons uh, and happen to test positive, but who've been hospitalized for symptoms of COVID. Uh, and when you look at the, if you drill down, and look at the numbers, that's something like 12,000 people uh, in inpatient beds, which is like 44% of the beds being used in hospitals. So almost half the people in hospitals right now are there for COVID. If you go back to something like June 2021, it was only 4% of people in hospital beds when there were actually more hospital beds. Now we have fewer because there's fewer staff to assist, because, in part because they're getting sick, um, but also in part because they're quitting. So I think it's impossible to deny that this latest wave is having a really deleterious impact on our hospitals. Uh, and that then raises the question of what impact is that having on the people who work there? And uh, Ilan, you were going to say more about that. Yeah, I've been reading about this issue because it is, I find it really heartbreaking to see what's going on with doctors and how they're uh, being subjected to conditions that I think are just unnecessarily grueling. Uh, I think there, there are so many ways in which this is needlessly harsh on them. 
there are a couple of interesting anecdotes that I came across from doctors. So there's an article in the Atlantic that we'll mention probably later, but a couple of things that left out at me from that. And also coverage in the New York Times, there was an, uh, a, a podcast on the daily, which some people might listen to, that talked to doctors around the country and asked them, what is it like in your hospital? Tell us. And I think they spoke to doctors in various states. One of them uh, was a former Navy captain who served in Afghanistan. He likened the conditions to what he saw and probably a little bit worse than what he saw in wartime. I, I don't know which hospital that is, but that, that is a really searing anecdote. A couple of other doctors who were interviewed in these articles mentioned that for people outside of the medical profession, we're hearing about surges of people getting sick and getting to the hospital. And there's, there seems to be waves. And, and I think there's truth in that if you look at the statistics, but in the way a lot of the people in hospitals are experiencing, the people who are working there, they're feeling, as one of them put it, it's a constant riptide pulling them under. It's not waves, it's a constant um, feeling that they're overwhelmed. And as you mentioned, many of the people who are getting sick are themselves healthcare workers. So that strains the system when there are fewer people on staff in a given day, more people to take care of, fewer staff. And then on top of it, not only some of them getting sick, but as you mentioned, and as we're suggesting, numbers of them are quitting. So there's a permanent loss of personnel. So you can just imagine what that is like. One of them that I, I just wanted to share before we dig into some of the consequences of this uh, is that th there's a kind of, um, you hinted at this at the beginning where some of the patients who are showing up are unvaccinated. And there are people who are unvaccinated for all sorts of reasons, some of them because of medical conditions, some of them because they choose not to, they have certain views about what vaccines are about and what they want for their bodies. But there's a class of patient that some of these doctors are reporting about who are showing up. And these are people who I, I would characterize as irresponsible. They, they chose not to take precautions that they could have. They ended up in hospital. And a lot of the interventions that could have been uh, saved them are just too late. They, a vaccine is not gonna help you once you're you know, on the path to needing a ventilator. And some of what the doctors are reporting and part of what makes their experience so uh, grinding and uh, difficult and, and arduous is that these patients are ingrateful. They're, they're, they're telling the doctors what they need. They're, you know, they're, they've got their MD from Google, from searching or from various conspiracy websites, and they're insisting on this treatment or that treatment and that medicine and that, and they have no, they don't have, they're not in a position to know what they need. And they're telling doctors who have expertise, who have learned a great deal about their field and continually learn about what to do in the face of COVID, they're, they're uh, dictating to these doctors what, how to treat them. And this idea that uh, you're gonna tell a, a doctor what to do with you, I think I, think I can see why that would be really, uh, would wear out your empathy for some of the patients that you're dealing with. Uh, there are some stories, that it, it's hard to say how common these things are, but some of these stories are uh, where, patients show up and they're uh, commanding their doctors, assaulting their, their nurses they're, they're dealing with, and just yelling and, and uh, acting out in, in, a, in, in hospitals. And 
so as one doctor put it, and I think this really encapsulates it powerfully, um, quote, we are at war with a virus and its hosts, infected people, with us. And if that's what you experienced, uh, Elon, you're cutting out a bit. So we didn't hear uh, that full quote. And even right now, it looks like you're a bit frozen. So let me, uh, while that recovers, let me let me move to the, I think what's the most logical next topic, which is when you're faced with patients like this, uh, what's what? how are you going to react to it if you're someone who's trained your entire life to take care of these kinds of patients? I, just to start off, I, I asked, you know, some doctor friends who are who are dealing with COVID patients, what their experience has been. Um, one of them told me that the burnout that he's witnessed in the industry has only really started since the vaccines. And he, he attributes that to the fact that before the vaccines, when everybody was, you know, uh, basically an unwitting victim, there was a sense that everybody was fighting against a common enemy, including that the, the doctors and the patients were all fighting against this common enemy. But once there was the option to get a vaccine and to uh, help prevent this from happening, when patients come in who could have prevented it, it, it makes it, it changes the situation. It makes it harder for the doctors to feel good about what they're doing, that it's a horrible feeling is the way that he described it. And this is a kind of anecdote that I've now seen repeated uh, in, you know, by, by other doctors who've, who've uh, been reported about in the mainstream uh, media. And we should go to uh, this article that was published in November, November 16th in The Atlantic, which really brought a lot of this together. The, the article was by Ed Young. It was called Why Healthcare Workers Are Quitting in Droves. And I just wanna, I wanna read from a passage from this article that I thought was the most interesting and revealing account of what's going on in the way doctors are thinking about these kinds of situations. I'm just gonna read straight from the article. He writes, beyond making workdays wretched, these experiences are inflicting deep psychological scars. Quote, we want to be rooting for our patients. Durham, who's a nurse, I think, told me. But anyone I know who's working in COVID has zero compassion remaining, especially for people who choose not to get the vaccine. Uh, Young goes on, for a healthcare worker being shaken by a patient's death comes with the job. Finding yourself unmoved is almost worse. Some call this burnout, but Gerard Brogan, the director of nursing practice at National Nurses United, dislikes the term because it implies a lack of character, he told me. He prefers moral distress the anguish of being unable to take the course of action that you know is right. Healthcare workers aren't quitting because they can't handle their jobs. They're quitting because they can't handle being unable to do their jobs. Even before COVID-19, many of them struggled to bridge the gap between the noble ideals of their profession and the reality of its business. Um, so there's, a, there's something about the way doctors think about what is the, no, the noble cause of their profession that is in play here, at least for many of them. Uh, they think that they ought to care uh, about all of the patients that they encounter, uh, and yet they find that they're unable to make themselves care, especially in these kinds of situations. Uh, and that aggravates 
in particular, what must already be a very aggravating situation, not only because of the, the grueling conditions and the, demand, the demands being made of them. Uh, so I, I don't think that this moral distress is the, is the only cause of, of the spate of reg resignations that we're now seeing, but it's the one that I think brings to the surface uh, a certain idea about morality uh, that actually ends up being responsible for a lot of the other causes uh, of these resignations that we need to talk about. Um, and some of those are just relation, in, in relation to the overall systemic nature of healthcare. And, and Ilan, I think you wanted to explore that further. Maybe, yeah, maybe you wanted to something. mention some of the things that we couldn't hear you say before, I don't know. Sure. I, I, I'm sorry I cut out. I think the, the quote I wanted to share with people was from one of the doctors who was interviewed. And as she put it, or he put it, uh, quote, we are at war with a virus and its hosts are at war with us. So this is the feeling that the patients that they're dealing with are in such a hostile relationship to their uh, doctors. And as you, as you went on to talk about this lack of empathy that's or waning empathy towards the patients that they're feeling. I think we should dig into the moral issue, but just before we do that, it's worth putting on the table just some of the other factors that are going into, that are part of this context that help explain why the conditions that doctors are experiencing are just so terrible and wretched. And starting with just a few political ones that I think are fairly obvious and that we've talked about in other conversations, I think the, the big one is just how this pandemic unrolled since the beginning and how there was a failure from top to bottom in from the federal government on down on preparedness just not having the materials and the personal protective equipment that doctors needed and, and healthcare workers needed generally you remember from the early days of the pandemic stories of doctors having to reuse masks from patient to patient of having to improvise aprons and improvise protective gear and there were people going into their woodworking shops and their metalworking shops and, and fabricating all sorts of things for doctors and dropping them off at the hospitals and sewing masks and so forth. So there was a real lack of preparedness at that level. And then you move into the hospital levels. There are certainly cases where particular hospitals in particular places were unprepared or their management really were just not sympathetic to the needs of doctors and, and nurses for protective equipment and just the supplies that they needed. So you can, if, if you're in a crisis that's now into its starting into its third year and you've had this from the beginning, you can see why this would be really grueling and overlaid on top of all these political factors are some of the points that we've, we've already hinted at, which is just this perspective that a lot of people have, not certainly not everyone, uh, the attitude towards healthcare that it's just, it's always gonna be there. There's no question about how it arises, what goes into it. You show up at the ER, you show up at urgent care, and there's always going to be a doctor or a nurse or whoever is there to help you. And just this understanding that we take healthcare for granted in a deep, deep way. It's this amazing value that's constantly progressing through technology and scientific advancement. And yet we, we, I don't think there's a real appreciation for that politically and culturally. Uh, so I think it's good to just to get a picture of some of the, those factors. I, um, did you want to add to this? Yeah, just one man, one important manifestation of this idea of 
taking healthcare for granted, of assuming that it's always going to be there like a force of nature, is the idea that many people in our culture have that there's a right to healthcare, that, that it's something that you should be able to demand of your society, of your government. Uh, and that idea is behind the push for various forms of socialized medicine in this country. And I think that it, we would be remiss if, if we didn't mention uh, the ways in which the types of socialized medicine that we've had imposed, most notably and most recently Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, uh, has made this situation worse. Uh, and it's, I, I've been digging recently into some of the, the details of uh, the Affordable Care Act's impact on emergency departments in hospitals. And if you, if you remember, uh, going back to the debate about Obamacare and what uh, motivated much of it in the first place, the idea was that there were too many uninsured patients who were relying on emergency rooms uh, for their, basically, for, for primary care, because there's a law in this country called EMTALA, which says that if you, if, if an uninsured patient who can't pay shows up at an emergency room, doctors can't turn them away. They have to treat them. And so as a result, if you don't have health insurance, you end up going uh, to emergency rooms as your kind of primary form of healthcare, because that way you know you, you can't be turned away even if you can't pay. And so the theory behind uh, Obamacare was, well, let's make sure more people get insured. Uh, so that way they don't have to rely on emergency rooms as their primary form of healthcare. They'll start going to regular doctors and uh, they won't wait till the last minute when an emergency happens, they'll, they'll get better healthcare generally, they'll have better access. Um, and so as a result, Medicare was expanded to cover more people. The trouble is that this didn't work. What I think a large number of academic studies, including by people who support the Affordable Care Act have found is that the number of people going to emergency rooms didn't decrease as a result of the Affordable Care Act. It actually increased uh, because it expanded the number of people who had health insurance. Um, but at the same time, it, it reduced the supply of doctors who were willing to take Medicare patients. So the patients who were supposed to go with their Obamacare insurance to regular doctors weren't able to get appointments because a lot of these doctors were stopping taking Medicare patients. They were, or they were leaving the field or they were becoming concierge doctors. And so they still ended up going to the to the emergency rooms where they had to be cared for. And so uh, as a result, and that you can see this kind of in the form of controlled experiments because there were certain states that took Medicare expansion money and certain ones that didn't. And the ones that took the Medicare expansion money had a uh, significant increase in ER visits, whereas there was no comparable increase in the non-Medicare expansion states. It was a perfect little experiment. And uh, as a result, in, especially in the states that did Medicare expansion, like California and New York, um, you, you have this increasing strain on emergency departments and hospitals leading into the COVID pandemic before the pandemic even starts. And so it's kind of setting up a perfect storm for, well, then what happens when these systems are really going to be put under strain because everybody's suddenly getting sick? Um, now, it's, it's easy to look at the situation, I think, and just decide, well, let's blame the politicians who passed the, uh, who passed the Affordable Care Act. And certainly they deserve a lot of blame, but the politicians passed it because they thought that the public at large supported this kind of policy. And indeed, when you look at polls, 
the Ob many aspects of Obamacare are very popular. The idea that it uh, you should be able to have insurance whether or not you have any uh, pre-existing conditions. The idea of a right to health care, generally speaking, is very popular. Uh, and people think that society has this obligation to provide them with health care, whether or not they can pay for it, whether it's because of they're just down on their luck or because they didn't take the necessary measures to save uh, for exigencies. The trouble with all of this is that it doesn't appreciate the fact that it's not, quote unquote, society that provides health care. Doctors provide health care. And so the interesting question is, what happens when doctors, the, the decreasing number of doctors that we have in the society, are faced off against the very people in the society who believe they have this right to healthcare, who think that they can demand the right to it, regardless of whatever irresponsible choices they've made, in already overcrowded emergency rooms? Well, you get the answer to that question when you, when you see what happens in this pandemic. Yeah, and I, I think it's good to dig into this a bit more because, as you said, the politicians who, who put this into law did so because they thought that is what will poll well, that is what their constituents want, that they thought fundamentally that morally this is what we need to do. This is, uh, it was unquestioned. And I remember the debates around Obamacare, I don't remember how, how many of our audience were paying attention to it, but that, that was the one thing that at least we at the Institute were uh, commenting on, and it really leapt out to me at the time, it was the one thing nobody questioned, including the opponents, such as they were, of Obamacare in the first uh, go of putting it into practice, which was the, the premise that healthcare is a right, that you can't deny it to anybody. It's, it's part of being a human being. And it is certainly not the case. That is false. There is no such right. And Deeper, it's it, that whole idea that it's a right comes, I think, is, is uh, informed and put forward by people on a particular moral view, which is that need creates a claim on others. And that comes from a, a moral idea that Ayn Rand called altruism, the idea of moral idea of self-sacrifice or sacrifice is the core of morality, sacrificing yourself for others in service to them. And that's the, the dominant view in our society. And, and it's unavoidably, it's infected the whole of the debate around healthcare and the whole practice of healthcare and everything from top to bottom in the field, I think is, is polluted by this. And one of the ways to see this is, is the way in which healthcare as a value, as a, as a product, if you think of it, it's, it is a product. It's a service that you get from people who have trained in the field and offer you their knowledge and their tools to solve the problems that you have with your health. It's a service and nobody really thinks of it anymore that way. The, the way the insurance markets have been corrupted by regulations and the way that the idea of sacrifices of virtue, that, that this is something that the needy have a claim on all those who create it. That's cre so that one of the consequences of this the deeper cultural phenomena here is that this helps to explain why so many people think of healthcare as just something that will always be there for them. They don't think about what goes into making it. They don't have to think about what goes into making it. And their moral views tell them they shouldn't bother thinking about what goes into making it because they have a need, they're sick. They, they then show up and show their sickness and they can make a claim on those who have the capacity to help them. 
So this is, I think this is part of the deep uh, root for why so many Americans take healthcare for granted and, and the people who provide it for granted. So one telling illustration of this was there was a kind of sobering moment early in the pandemic when suddenly people realized, wait a second, look at all these amazing people who are working in the hospitals and, and saving lives and the heroic stories we heard. And it was all true. I mean, there's no question of that. And so suddenly uh, people came, I call it sobering because it really means like they snapped out of their lethargy and their uh, perspective, which was healthcare, it's just here. Who cares how it comes here? Or do I have to think about that? And then they realized, well, we have these amazing heroic people doing work to help uh, deal with this pandemic. And, and it was a fierce struggle at the beginning. If you remember, hospitals were really overwhelmed. They had cooler trucks for the bodies that, because they, the morgues were overrun. And then you heard people starting to appreciate healthcare professionals. There were people showing outside of hospitals, honking their horns. I think they were in some cities, they had a set time of day where people would bang pots and pans in, in celebration of the heroism of people working in healthcare. I remember it vividly. And there were care packages and public acclaim and gratitude, and we celebrate healthcare workers, and there were signs in people's lawns. And then it went away. You don't hear the people honking at 5 p.m. You know, people don't stand outside of hospitals anymore. There are a few lawn signs here and there. Maybe they're left over. But the whole conception of these people working in healthcare are doing amazing, valuable work, and we should appreciate it and understand it and value it. That faded very quickly, even though we're, the pandemic hasn't ended. In fact, it's been ongoing. And in some ways, uh, it, it got worse after the first peak in the spring of 2020. We've seen various surges. So we had this moment where suddenly people got a glimpse of what the, the source of this value was and the people creating it. And then we reverted to the initial condition of taking it for granted. And in some cases, worse than taking it for granted, just treating them like trash and as servants, which is essentially, we don't care what happens to the doctors. We don't care how much time they have to put into it. We don't care what risks they have to take, what impact that has on their life. We don't care if they leave the profession, which is one of the motivations I had for having this conversation uh, today. That whole perspective is now back to where it was, I, I would argue, pre-pandemic. And this, I think, just to tie it back to this idea of the, I, the moral view that is so prevalent in the culture, which I think feeds this and it makes it the default position. Altruism, as Ayn Rand conceives of it, skews your way of looking at the world. It skews it away from the creators of value. And it tells you, pay attention to those who are needy, those who are suffering, those who don't have, those who are, are have-nots in various ways and including the people who are sick and can't pay for or took stupid decisions or irresponsible decisions, don't ask how they got there. They have a need, that's their claim on you. And the more needy, the more they have a claim. What that leaves out of the picture, and deliberately so, are those who can solve those problems, those who create the value that's needed. But in this case, the, the people working as doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals in various forms in the hospitals, in the crisis right now. Altruism turns your attention away from them and towards those who are suffering. And, and what that means is that they, the creators of value are ignored. They're, they're not appreciated. They're not valued. And there's, a, there's a, a line from one of Ayn Rand's essays that I think really encapsulates this well. I, I'd like to, to read it. Quote, altruism, as she puts it, is concerned or 
uh, altruism is concerned only with those who suffer, not those who provide relief from suffering, not even enough to care whether they are able to survive. And I think that's what we're seeing aspects of in the hospital situations where patients are showing up, demanding things from doctors and nurses and treating them as if they are not fully human and treating them as servants whose welfare we don't have to care about. This is, I think, at a deep level, part of the root for why we see this as a cultural phenomenon, people looking towards healthcare as something that is to be taken for granted and, and uh, uh, ignoring the value creators in this equation. I think there's a, there's a question that someone could ask at this point about, well, are, are we blaming un, the unvaccinated uh, for the, the situation that these doctors are dealing with? And I would say it's not quite as simple as that, as, as I think you rightly mentioned. You know, there can be legitimate reasons that people have in certain cases for not wanting to get vaccinated. And, and there can even be um, illegitimate reasons, but that ones people are honestly mistaken about, I think. Um, and so I, I don't know about you, I'd like to hear your perspective, but my view at least is that I do blame some of these unvaccinated people who, uh, who don't have good reasons, who have dishonest reasons uh, for choosing to do something that could improve their own life, that could pr protect them against uh, a deadly, a possibly deadly disease. Uh, and which then also then have these these impacts on uh, on a lot a lot of other people, including these healthcare workers. And so, what's the attitude that someone like this should have? Let's say if they've made the mistake of uh, uh, making an irrational uh, judgment about the 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 need for these vaccines, uh, if they should happen to get sick, am I saying they just shouldn't go to the hospital? Well, I wouldn't say that either, but I would say that if they end up going. Uh, and in doing so, realize in, in part the mistake they made, they sure as hell uh, shouldn't show up expecting to be given priority. Uh, and they shouldn't expect that uh, these, these people who've worked their whole life to understand medicine in a way that uh, the patient hasn't uh, are to be brushed aside or, or, or treated uh, as a slave. Uh, and you know the kind of stories that we hear about their you know, being treated abusively in hospitals by these people are unacceptable. And so, like, if you get sick after having had you know made this decision, I think you go to the hospital and you kind of humbly say you're sorry and, and ask for help if it's available. But that's about all that you can expect. Um, I mean, if if I get sick at this point, I, I did decide to get vaccinated. Uh, but if if I go uh, to the hospital, I, I sure hope that they're going to be able to help me. But my view now is I, I understand if they quit first and, uh, and uh, aren't there to do it, I'm not gonna blame them. And that I think gets us, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that perspective. No, I think it's important to, to parse out the different kinds of situations and the reasons people might be in a, in a position where they, have, they end up in hospital and sick. And did they take reasonable precautions? Did they? delude themselves? Were they being irresponsible? I think those are important moral distinctions at this point. I think the data are, are such that you can make those kinds of distinctions, but I'm certainly not arguing that, and I agree with you, I don't think the, the point of this conversation is that the, the entire blame lies on a community of people who chose not to get vaccinated. There, there's systemic problems in hospitals and with healthcare generally that are already uh, causing doctors and nurses to have 
an unduly difficult time coping with this crisis. And, and on top of that, you add patients who are coming in who have made irresponsible decisions or who are endangering the, the professionals who are uh, treating them and who are being uh, oblivious to the debt that they owe to those who are, who are providing them this service and they're treating them like servants, and in fact, not caring about them. Yeah, we said that we were going to talk about the, the philosophical ideas behind this situation. And if we had to single out one philosophical idea that is to blame for this situation, it's, it's the idea that you see in these ungrateful patients showing up and demanding this care, that they have a right to demand it, that the others have this selfless obligation to dispense it. That's the same idea that is responsible for the state of our healthcare system in general. It's that same kind of altruism that was the motive behind the push for socialized medicine that made it such that these emergency rooms weren't ready for this in the first place. And then also, very interestingly, to go back to our hook, which is the, this problem of moral distress that the doctors themselves are facing, there's another way in which that same idea is to blame. Because if you, if you look at some of the things that these doctors have said that we quoted earlier in the broadcast about why they're feeling this moral distress, at least a significant part of the reason they're feeling it is because they themselves share this same altruistic idea that they think that the purpose of their profession is, to, is for them to be altruists, is for them to sacrifice to others, is part of why they see their profession as a noble profession. And then when they encounter these irrational ingrates whom they can't bring themselves to actually care about, yeah, they're distressed that they can't make themselves care about these people in the way they, they themselves think that they should. They're finding they can't force themselves to want to do what they themselves think is right. And I think that when that happens, it's, it's a sign, well, first, that, that part of what's to blame here is the idea that, uh, of what they think is right, but the fact also that this idea is impossible, that this idea is irrational. They're coming up against this contradiction because they find they can't force themselves to do something that they themselves believe is right. And if you, th there can't be a moral ideal to do the impossible. Nothing impossible can be the right thing. Uh, they need to rethink this. They need to rethink this idea. They need to realize that it, what makes their field noble isn't that it's about serving other people. All professions do that. Uh, all professions demand to pay for it, both material and spiritual, both a paycheck and some kind of respect. And that applies to medicine just as well. Their doctors and nurses are there to serve their patients and to be paid for it, uh, both you know, by getting adequate compensation and, and by, treated, by being treated with some kind of respect. Uh, so I think it's an opportunity for those doctors who, who, who may have actually had good reasons for going into the field to think about what those reasons were. Uh, and, and hopefully it wasn't just because they had accepted this kind of uh, ideal of selflessness. I think those would be the ones most likely to burn out when they find it just doesn't work. Uh, and one last thought uh, is doctors are concerned with treating the health of the body. That's what the field of medicine is concerned with. 
as a teaser and as a as a uh, as a, a clue, I think it's worth thinking about if they're considering this question now. Is there a science that concerns itself with the health of the soul or with the health of their character? I think that's the science of morality. I think that there's no scientific basis for this ideal of altruism that they've accepted, and they should they should look for an alternative. Um, especially when you know they're the ones who have trained to it, it, have learned the science of health. What what do they deserve because of this training? Um, it, that reminds me, Alon. There was this. Um, there was another passage in that same Atlantic article that we referenced, and it was the one that that started the uh, that the author uh, opened the article with, and it was just it was a story about a a nurse who was treating a, a dying COVID patient, and you know using a, a hand pump ventilation bag to keep them breathing while the family gathered around uh, to say their goodbyes, uh, the same family that had gotten them sick, and one of them says a miracle might happen and they're kind of praying for a miracle and the nurse finds herself thinking i am the miracle i'm the only person keeping your loved one alive and i think that is the right attitude i think i think more of these doctors and nurses need to realize they're the ones who deserve thanks it's not god who deserves thanks uh they're the ones who are providing this health care uh and they need to realize that they deserve something because of that. And they certainly don't deserve this kind of disrespect that they're getting. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with one last uh, thought. And Elon, you can comment on this too if you want to. But it, it, all of this reminded me of uh, a passage in Ayn Rand's uh, book, Atlas Shrugged, uh, where there is a doctor uh, who comments on the state and the nature of a society that, that demands a right to health care from him. Uh, and uh, put this quote up on the screen. Uh, this is Dr. Hendricks. He says, I observed that in all the discussions that preceded the enslavement of medicine, men discussed everything except the desires of the doctors. Men considered only the welfare of the patients with no thought for those who were to provide it. That a doctor should have any right, desire, or choice in the matter was regarded as irrelevant selfishness. His is not to choose, they said, only to serve. I have often wondered at the smugness with which people who assert their right to enslave me, to control my work, to force my will, to violate my conscience, to stifle my mind, yet what is it that they expect to depend on when they lie on an operating table under my hands? Well, I think uh, today a lot of them are finding out what they're depending on, and, and many of the doctors are also asking themselves these kinds of questions. Yeah, I, I was thinking of uh, Atlas Shrugged too when I was reading about the experiences of healthcare professionals in these various articles and preparing for this conversation. And the one wider point I thought of raising for people who haven't read the book is that one of the, the points that you discover in the story as you go through it is that it's, and it's not only applicable to the, this character that you quoted who was a doctor it's applicable to all of the creators of value in this story or whatever scale they are and from from you know the genius level industrialists and, and artists and so on all, all the way through to people of various levels of ability is that 
the more they take seriously this moral idea of sacrifice, of altruism, the more it's destructive of their own life, both how they think of themselves and their relationships with other people. And then obviously also on a cultural level, and we've talked about different ways in which you can see some of that in the case of the healthcare situation today. But it struck me that one of the big misconceptions about altruism, so it has a a reputation in a way that is completely in contrast and in contradiction to its actual nature. People think altruism is a good thing. And one of the things Ayn Rand has been famous for is for, for showing people that it's not at all what you think it is. It's actually destructive, it's harmful. If you think about it more deeply, you recognize that it's, it's a view that you should question and challenge and I think ultimately re reject. But one of the things that struck me in this connection is just how vast the gulf is between the reputation of altruism and what people think they're living by and the reality of how it destroys their motivation, their love for what they do, it really poisons their one of the huge values in life, which is a career. So you, you gave this example uh, just a moment ago about the way doctors are feeling and you encourage them to rethink the assumptions that they have and their moral views. But to me, this is one of the illustrations of how altruism is demoralizing. As a moral view, it, morality should give you ideals, things to aspire to, things to live up to, things that you look at and say, I want to do more like that. I want to, this is going to be good for my life. And in fact, in reality and unavoidably, altruism is demoralizing in the sense that it takes away motivation, it, it saps uh, energy. And in this particular context, what we're seeing is it's, it's wearing out the supply or the, the, the ability of doctors to have the kind of compassion for their patients that as a norm, I think they would, this is the kind of uh, approach they would like to have. But when, you, when it, the relationships are so uh, enmeshed in this web of altruistic beliefs, it really destroys that. So it destroys the patient-doctor relationship, it destroys the hospital, it destroys the whole industry. And really, it, 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 the more people want to be moral, the more it harms them. So it, it works by leveraging the best within people, their desire to be good. Uh, so to me, this is a, one more reason to explore Ayn Rand's ideas, just to see how powerful her identifications are. And we, we've been talking about how one of them here can illustrate and illuminate, I should say, uh, the particular context of the crisis that doctors are feeling. Yeah, there's uh, something wrong with amorality that is uh, demoralizing, I think is a good way of summing up uh, one of the best points you just made. Ilan, should we start to move to questions? I see that we've gotten a few and we can, mm -hmm. we can certainly ask for more. Sure. Uh, either through YouTube Super Chat or through uh, Zoom. And we, we've gotten a few uh, YouTube uh, Super Chat donations uh, already. So thanks, thanks very much for those. Um, one question that I see that's worth commenting on from YouTube is, uh, are we going to have the same attitude toward obese candy eaters and cardiovascular patients who don't exercise? Well, what, what attitude exactly are we talking about? Um, the attitude that they need to bear responsibility for their decisions? Uh, I, would say, I would say yes in that case. And it's worth pointing out that it's those kinds of examples that, that often come up um, in the, the overall debate about 
the right to health care, that it's those who advocate it uh, don't usually say that, oh, if somebody uh, got sick uh, through their own fault, they, they, they ate too much or otherwise had unhealthy practices, then they don't have a right to health care. No, they, the, the view is they still have that right, that it's a right that exists uh, regardless of the vice or the virtue of, of, uh, of people. Usually, uh, the attitude that leads to this idea of a right maintains there's you can't really distinguish between the vice and the virtue in the first place. Everyone's the product of uh, their genetics and their environment. So how can you even blame them for their choices? And uh, it, it is interesting that in the latest controversy, uh, there has been a tendency uh, by people on the left who've otherwise been uh, advocates of the right to healthcare uh, on grounds that I just mentioned to kind of forget about that and take a moralistic tone toward uh, unvaccinated people. I think this is uh, chickens coming home to roost for them. I don't think they, they quite have the logical right to demand of that, by the, to demand uh, to make that kind of judgment by the logic of the premises that led them to advocate uh, for state control of medicine. Uh, they don't really have any grounds to, to, to blame unvaccinated people or to, to make uh, moral judgments about them. Uh, it's only a viewpoint that says that, no, people do make choices. They're not, they don't get to blame their genetics or their environment. There is a difference between vice and virtue. Some people do deserve the consequences of their choices, uh, whether good or bad. It's only on that view that you get to make this uh, judgment. And I think that applies consistently uh, to uh, all kinds of uh, choices that people make. Um, this doesn't mean that somebody who's made bad choices shouldn't be able to make up for that by you know, uh, uh, paying to get medical treatment. Um, but then the idea is part of uh, taking responsibility is being the one to pay that cost. And do you have anything uh, more on that question, Elon? And it looks like Elon has frozen uh, again. I, I heard you just very briefly there, Elon, and your picture is frozen. So uh, while we're waiting for you to come back, let me take a look at some of the other questions that have come in. Um, and a lot of the questions that we've gotten have, are, are about the, the nature of the vaccine and about um, treatments for it. And we're not here to answer those questions. We've, we've done, done a number of other episodes where people who know more about these kinds of questions than we do have been able to answer some of these questions. Um, so the one, one that I see that I know a little bit about, um, well, actually, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to venture that one. I don't know, Elon, do you see say, any of these others that you want to comment I, on? I'm sorry, I, I'd like to go back to the one you, you answered. You answered very sure. thoroughly and well, and I, I agree with what you said. I, I just want to add one perspective, which I, I wonder if this is where the questioner was coming from. And I, if it is, I just want to offer a thought about that. Uh, so the question was worded, uh, uh, are we going to have the same attitude toward obese candy eaters and cardiovascular patients who don't exercise? So if you've ever been in a context where a value is rationed and healthcare in, in the United Kingdom is rationed, and I've lived in contexts where food was rationed and so on. So there is a way in which when that is the context and the more socialized a healthcare system becomes, the more you see rationing in different ways 
then it's natural, but unhealthy, but it's natural that people look at each other and say, I'm paying for your healthcare and look at you, you're a slob. Why don't you go exercise? I don't want to have to worry about having to pay more in my fees and taxes because you need a triple bypass. And why don't you stop eating candy and rotting your teeth? Because I don't have to pay for your dental work. And when, when you have a system where everyone pays for everyone else, this whole idea of uh, we just serve the needy and whoever has the resources contributes. So the socialization of a, of a value you definitely get the phenomenon of people who look at each other and say, mm, I don't like this. Why are you behaving this way? This is bad. And there have been stories about this sort of thing in the UK, if you followed the news there. But I'll just one anecdote about this. Um, my grandparents lived in a kibbutz, which is a socialist commune. And when we visited them as guests, we didn't work there. We didn't earn any, any of the, the food that was offered to us. So as guests, we were under strict orders not to eat too much because that would put my grandparents in an awkward position with respect to all of their other uh, kibbutz members or kibbutz, sort of the commune members because, hey, your grandkids showed up and look how much they ate. You didn't work that much. I'm feeding your grandchild. That's, you know, and you can see why people would feel a sense of injustice when that happens because the food is rationed. There's only so much food, only so many hours that people work to create it. So if that's what you're asking about the questioner, then I think there is, a, there is a logic to why this ends up happening where people resent each other to the extent they're in a system where one person is responsible for the, the irresponsibility and recklessness or irrationality of other people. Uh, and and this, is, this also is another uh, point that is vividly and powerfully illustrated in Atlas Shrugged in many different ways. And I, I know you're thinking of the same example I am, Ben. Um, but that's just another encouragement for people who haven't read the book to dive into it, just to see what the power of that idea looks like. Yeah, it's 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 the story that is told in the story of the 20th century motor company. And uh, I think the lesson there is that it's it's only in a system where each person is is treated as a servant of the other and bound. People are bound to each other involuntarily through through statist collectivism, that another person's choices, bad or good, um, can be a burden uh, on you. And so, you know, when I say that the uh, people who make bad health decisions need to live with the consequences, that's, that is not something I'm saying in the context of the expectation, well, therefore, I think we need to have a, a board that's set up to decide who gets what. No. Uh, it's it's that's in the context of uh, if we were living in a free society, those people should have to pay for their own uh, for their own decisions. And uh, if it's a problem when people's bad decisions negatively impact others, that's a reason to get out of a system that that uh, binds people to each other in that way. That system is empowered by the same kind of uh, view that there's a right to healthcare, which is empowered by altruism, which is which is now also showing up in so many different aspects of this problem, whether it's the, the demands of the patients or the guilt and distress of the doctors. And we need to we need to challenge this idea uh, to to start to move away from these kinds of impossible dilemmas that people are now having to try to resolve. So Elon, I think we should we should move to wrap up and we'll start to do that 
I think Elon's frozen again, sorry about that. We'll start to do that by uh, sharing some resources uh, for people who want to learn more about some of the ideas that we talked about today. Uh, so first of all, uh, a couple of readings. One is the uh, source of the quote that we put on the screen before from Atlas Shrugged. Uh, this is from, uh, this is a section of Atlas Shrugged that's sometimes called the forgotten man of socialized medicine. That's what it's called in the book for the new intellectual where it's reprinted as an excerpt. But we also have it online uh, on the ARI website. So if you go to bit.ly slash Atlas Forgotten Man, you can read that excerpt in its entirety, the little speech by Dr. Hendricks. Um, also an invaluable resource on this, the general topic of the right to healthcare and why it isn't a right is uh, a classic essay by Dr. Leonard Peikoff, Healthcare is Not a Right. That's also on the ARI website. You can read that at bit.ly slash no right healthcare. Uh, also, uh, I'll let you know that right after this broadcast, we will be moving to Clubhouse, where we will continue to talk about this conversation. So you can look up the Ayn Rand Club on your Clubhouse app, either on iOS or Android. And uh, we will be going live within just a couple of minutes. So look for us there, show up with more questions if you want, want to continue this conversation. Also say that uh, next week's episode of New Ideal Live will feature an interview uh, on the, the subject that we've just been discussing, the, the, the philosophic subject we've just been discussing, this idea that uh, someone's need is a, a moral claim on those who can provide it. Uh, Ilan, you'll be interviewing Peter Schwartz, the author of the book, The Tyranny of Need, uh, in an episode we're calling The Tyranny of Need and The Rational Alternative. That's next week, Wednesday, same time, same place. If you enjoyed this episode today and want to follow us in the future, especially if you're on YouTube, you can subscribe, you can click that bell to get notifications for when we go live or post new recordings. If you're watching a recording of this, uh, please like or share or comment on the episode in order to help uh, attract more viewers to the episode in question. Uh, same thing on Facebook, like, uh, share, or comment if you're watching on Facebook, either live or as a recording. And if you have questions about things that came up today, please consider sending us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We read all of the messages that come into this address. We reply to most of them. Sometimes we even do episodes on topics that are suggested by our viewers. So um, thanks for talking with me about this today, Ilan. It's good to be here. See you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.